Hello, listeners. The title of today's episode is absolutely a joke. I called it Trolls as a nod to Joe Hartman, who claimed to be my very first troll on LinkedIn. I love trolls. They give me energy like Red Bull. Today is all about listener feedback. I'm Rich Vogel, and this is Stimulating Stuff. Let's go. Welcome back to Stimulating Stuff. I'm Rich Vogel, and you are, um, I don't know. I need a name for you all. You know how there's Swifties and Beliebers and Directioners and Mahomies and Katie Cats? What should I call you? I have to think about that. Send me your comments. Okay, so today I'm reading the mail. This is an opportunity for me to share with my listeners feedback that I've received from some of you on recent topics. I really want you all to get a perspective, a balanced perspective, and hear what other people think. This is supposed to be a conversation after all. I want my listeners to know that you can write to me with anything and I'll never quote you unless you ask me to or give me permission to or if you write something publicly on socials. So don't worry, I will protect your anonymity. Feel free to send me comments. Okay, let's jump in. The first listener will remain anonymous and this person says, I think I do an okay job at getting newcomers in the field super psyched about absorbing as much info and training as possible owning their craft, and taking pride in their work and growth. And then they get into the daily grind surrounded by other folks in the industry doing subpar work, and they quickly become jaded wondering why their ambition would even matter. They're surrounded by that mean of the bell curve that you reference. Does the root lie within us? I think it's cultural. In some areas, surgeons are running a factory that rewards efficiency without any hiccups or distractions. This means that people who are super fast with electro placement and do the same cases the same way, day after day, without questions, they tend to be the weakest technologists, um, the weakest students who don't really get to know their anatomy, who consistently get praise from surgeons for being great. What does great even mean? Their bosses and their bosses' bosses love them too because all they hear is great, great, great from the customer. So it gets perpetuated while the super intelligent, ambitious superstars ask for letters of recommendation to medical school. Dang! There are so many great points in this email. So the next question we have to ask ourselves is, who sets the bar for quality and competency in neuromonitoring? I mean, the surgeon orders neuromonitoring. The hospital contracts with the technical services company, and that company contracts with a neurologist, or maybe they employ a neurologist. So the hospital and surgeon are ultimately the client, the customer. If the surgeon is happy with the services they're getting, if the bar they set is quick setup with no disruption of surgery, then that's the bar, right? So then what if the neurologist, for example, sets a different bar, one that focuses on quality of neuromonitoring and competency of the neuromonitorist? And what if this bar produces the very disruption that the surgeon, the end user, the client, the customer wants to avoid? 
and I just use the example of a neurologist there, but it could very well be that person's manager who expects them to have a different level of competency and quality. It could be the education team at a company. Anyway, this probably happens more often than everyone appreciates, right? And I think it's exactly what I was talking about when I said before that neuromonitorists are often caught between physicians with competing interests. It's a really difficult position to be in. Who do you focus on making happy when it's impossible to make everyone happy? I think most neuromonitorists would choose to make the surgeon happy because that's their client. But most neurologists would probably want to be the one chosen to be made happy, right? Because they're the ones providing oversight and ultimately responsible for the neuromonitoring. There's no perfect decision for the neuromonitorist, and that's part of what makes working in that role so difficult. I often think you can never make everyone happy. Sometimes the only goal is to keep everyone from being so angry. So the reason we have people in this field who don't know their anatomy, who don't have a great understanding of what they're doing, who don't have all the basics that I listed in my third episode, is because the surgeons ultimately set the bar? Maybe that's true. That's one of the reasons I got involved with NAS, the North American Spine Society, years ago. It was obvious to me that the main decision makers in neuromonitoring are the surgeons. And if you ask surgeons, who makes the decisions about neuromonitoring, including when and how it's performed, many strongly believe there's only one cook in the kitchen and it's them. So in NAS, we try to educate surgeons about neuromonitoring. What makes for good, high-quality neuromonitoring, right? When should neuromonitoring be used and why? We try to make changes there because that's who ultimately determines where the bar is regarding the quality and competency with which neuromonitoring is performed in the OR. At least, I, I believe that this listener is alluding to that, and there's actually a lot of truth to that. One of my favorite quotes is, whatever you're not changing, you're choosing. Not sure who said that, but I definitely believe it. We've made some great strides in surgeon education and particularly through the North American Spine Society, but there's still much work to be done. Okay, on to my next feedback email. This listener will also remain anonymous. Here's what this person says. I really like the podcast. I think the presentation is good and professional. However, I think you take some things too far. I don't think the reality of the collective field is as bad as you say it is. For example, I don't think the majority of neuromonitorists have bad relationships with surgeons or get yelled at. Some do, but most don't. Also, the for-profit companies are part of the problem, but so are the in-house groups and the professional societies. I'm willing to bet that the larger neuromonitoring companies out there have better education and training programs than the in-house programs out there. Also, the oversight professionals are probably as much or more to blame than any group out there. You mentioned your meetings with Cigna representing the neuromonitoring field and the fact that these letters to payers are written by surgical societies. You're doing all this extra work when you really don't even benefit directly. There are very few oversight professionals actively engaged in making things better. Wow, uh, another great feedback email. There's a lot to unpack there. Let me first acknowledge that I do take things uh, too far sometimes. And I've said this online and I've said this uh, in a recent podcast that should air soon from Noropod. 
to be perfectly transparent, my goal is in the first few episodes really was to be strategically and carefully controversial. And you sort of have to do that if you want to get people talking about your podcast, if you want to build a listenership. So when I share my email at the end of each podcast, I'm putting it on you, the listener, to challenge me. Let's talk about this stuff. I'm an open book. Okay, that being said, I truly agree that most neuromonitorists don't have a bad relationship with surgeons or get yelled at. It certainly happens, but it's not the majority. I do think that most are treated like reps and are largely marginalized by the experience of not being made to feel part of the team. Have you ever met anyone working in neuromonitoring who feels that wearing those paper scrubs and red cap has been helpful in any way? Probably not. So I think the majority of people in this field are marginalized by these experiences like wearing the paper scrubs and red caps and the downstream effects of how people treat them when they dress like that. I would also agree very strongly that the larger neuromonitoring companies tend to have the best education and training programs out there and that those programs have become increasingly sophisticated over the years. I also previously mentioned a lack of high quality research but I'll point out that some of the best research has come out of the larger neuromonitoring companies who are able to leverage their databases for research I mean when I was in that meeting with Cigna at least two or three papers by Brian Willent were cited by surgeons or neurologists as evidence for the utility and benefit of neuromonitoring so I'm not saying that everybody out there isn't doing research and everybody out there is dumbing down their education. And I'm also not saying that the end-all be-all is the larger neuromonitoring companies. It's just that they tend to have the best infrastructure and the best sophistication to do these things at scale. So I think that's wonderful. I also think people don't take advantage of the education like they could or should. In a previous group that I worked for, who's no longer in existence, we gave the entire company annual memberships to Asset and ASNM, and we gave all employees the ability to attend one conference per year, all expenses reimbursed. Do you know that less than 10% of employees took advantage of those benefits? Similarly, some of the professional societies have very high quality continuing education. But participation isn't what it should be. So few people overall benefit from this. And that, I believe, perpetuates the problem. Uh, Regarding me and a small group of other non-physician doctors being the ones representing physicians, you know, I'll say two things. First is, that's not entirely true. There are physicians representing physicians. But there are a small number overall and i will admit frankly that in in perfect transparency i will say that this has vexed me a bit over the years on the one hand we've historically and these are the the non-physician doctors we historically have not been considered quote-unquote professionals While on the other hand, we've been the face of neuromonitoring in fighting these changes in professional reimbursement. As my listener noted, when we don't even benefit directly, 
in addition to being the face of the effort or among the faces of the effort, we've also been the authors, often working as ghostwriters, of multiple letters, literature summaries, and other position statements that have come from the neurology societies. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when they need something written, they come to us non-physician doctors. And I'm not saying we write everything, I'm not saying we represent everything, but we're there, always, either being the face or working behind the scenes to support and advance the profession. So, and I'm not saying this to be controversial or tout my own efforts or to detract from the efforts of others. It's simply a matter of fact. And the people who are listening who are very well aware of this would be right to question my motives or my legitimacy if I didn't acknowledge it publicly. So in the spirit of total transparency, yes, I do a lot of this work. Uh, I'm not the only one. I wish people would acknowledge this work and I wish more people would get involved. But this is just how things work. It simply is what it is. Um, I can wish that things would change, but wishing isn't a strategy that has ever worked for me. Um, The last point my listener made was that there were very few oversight professionals actively engaged in making things better. On the whole, I would agree, but I would also counter that there are very few neuromonitorists doing the same. So if you look at the number of oversight professionals working in the entire field and you look at the number of neuromonitorists working in the entire field, I'd be willing to bet that the percentages of people who are working to make things better within those groups are probably the same. It's always a small percentage of people who are willing to do the lion's share of work, and that's not just related to neuromonitoring. It's just a fact of life. All right, let's move on to the next listener. I've noticed you use the term neuromonitorist in referring to CNIMS. I've never heard that word before. Where did it come from? Well, the truth is, I just made it up. I know there are people out there who are uncomfortable with use of the word technician or technologist, and there are people who are uncomfortable with use of the word neurophysiologist or surgical neurophysiologist. So I wanted to find something that was comfortable for everyone, and I hope that's the case. Also, the Department of Labor has very specific definitions around the word technician and the word technologist in healthcare, and people don't easily fall into these buckets. So I'll give you an example. The Department of Labor says, and I'm not quoting here, I'm just giving you a a summary. The Department of Labor says that a technician academically has no more than a high school degree and may possess additional certification specific to their job role. And a technologist has no more than a master's degree and may possess additional certification. So those two words are often used interchangeably, but they're very different. And somebody could be offended if you choose one or another. And the non-physician doctors out there who are CNIMS, they don't fall into these categories at all. So in trying to find a generic term, I thought neuromonitorist was the most neutral word I could come up with. I hope that works for you all. Okay, let's take a quick break here for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back in a sec. (music) 
Veridical RCM is a special kind of revenue cycle management company specializing in intraoperative monitoring, billing, and collections, which is often misunderstood by the insurance industry, by hospital administration, and ultimately, patients. Veridical considers each contract a partnership, reviewing and making recommendations for improvement in all areas that impact revenue, including scheduling, credentialing, clinical documentation, infrastructure, charge master review, and facility contracting. The Veridical RCM team has a deep understanding of the changes affecting revenue with the implementation of the Federal No Surprises Act and each state's rules regarding surprise billing. They use this knowledge concurrently with each payer's medical policy guidelines to compliantly optimize revenue capture. Whether you choose to keep the revenue cycle in-house or outsource to a third-party billing company, you can definitely benefit from their guidance. Visit www.veriticalrcm.com for more information. That's V as in victory, E-R-I-D-I-C-A-L-R-C-M.com. And we're back. I'm reading the mail today and responding to some of the questions and comments that came from my listeners. Let's move on to the next listener. This person says, what are your thoughts on the new guidelines on qualifications for neurodiagnostic professionals? Well, uh, I think it's a great advancement for our field when there's a lot of confusion surrounding nomenclature for different roles and what the pathway or pathways are for advancement. I think it's also a great advancement because it was a collaboration between four societies, ASSET, ASNM, ACNS, and AANEM. I think it's not perfect. It doesn't fit well with the outsourced neuromonitoring world, and there's lots of confusion around the CNIM. For example, I think a careful reading of it will show that you have to spend a year in training where you're not allowed to touch patients, and at that point you can take the CNIM and you can start touching patients, but the CNIM requires you to have a certain amount of cases where you're actually performing them on your own. So there's a lot of confusion there as to what that means, and there may be other sources of confusion within the neurodiagnostic community. I'm not sure, but I do know that it is a living document, which is intended to be continuously updated over time. So if you have confusion or if you are looking for specific updates in the future, I say talk to the leadership in your favorite society, whether that's the ASSET, ASNM, ACNS, AANEM, and advocate for changes there. But overall, I think it's a great advancement. There's room for improvement. It's a living document. I think it will be updated and improved over time. Okay, last piece of mail here. I'm calling this mail, but this is a message that came from Joe Hartman, and this was posted on LinkedIn. So since it was a public post on social media and he was readily identified, I'm naming him. So just to be fair to all the listeners who didn't see the whole post, I cut some of it out for brevity. But in general, Joe seems to believe that we've gotten better at what we often call the technical aspects of neuromonitoring over time. He says, we've always been on a bell curve. There used to be fatter tails and less curve, but that's actually worse. The entire curve shifted towards an area of improvement 
and the tails got skinny, it's harder to be exceptionally good or bad. Today, information is much easier to access, plus our equipment is less likely to cause as many issues, which is where the experience really pays off. There's less need for long training programs, but more than what's currently happening, for sure. He goes on to say, more is placed on the individual. Each individual has to recognize all the resources available to them, plus the restriction placed on them by their company. And where should things be going, he says. Comparing what we had, which was what he called didactically starved or very little in the form of formal education, uh, computer novices and people rich in experience versus what we have today, which is didactically strong, computer literate and people who have less experience, the solution seems to be more along the lines of developing simulations over creating new certification. Okay, uh, there's a lot to unpack there too. You know, I like the idea of simulations to train people. I think that's fantastic. We're not there yet, but I think it would be a great advancement in the future. While I do believe that the larger companies with big educational infrastructures are didactically strong, the majority of the field just doesn't have those resources. And the majority of the field doesn't work for the big companies. I mean, there are people out there that don't know the professional societies even exist. They aren't aware of textbooks or articles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they just don't know that these things even exist. The majority of the field, I agree with Joe, is computer literate. But there are definitely people out there that don't know how to display data, perform basic troubleshooting, communicate with OR staff, document cases, etc., etc. It's all the basics that I mentioned earlier in that third episode. So if these things are happening literally every day, then we're not didactically strong, in my opinion, because people aren't learning how to do the job. Again, I'm not talking about everyone. There are great neuromonitorists out there, but I don't agree with Joe when he says the competency curve has shifted for the better. And maybe I'm assuming that's what he's meaning when, he's, when, when he says the, the curve has shifted. Um, I could have read that wrong, but that's kind of the way I read it. Anyway, that's my thought on that. I, I do believe that as a field, from the very beginning, sure, we have gotten better in some ways. But over the past 10 years, I think the curve has shifted for the worse. And that's really where my focus was. Okay, that's it for the mail today. A very special thank you to those listeners for sharing their thoughts. Please continue sending me your comments, critiques, and thought-provoking questions. If you don't agree with me, please share your perspectives. I'm not the final word on anything, and I really want this to be a group conversation. Again, don't worry. I won't quote you unless you ask me to or you grant me permission. Or if you post something online, do it at your own risk. Anyway, uh... Thank you so much. Send your thoughts and comments to stimulatingstuffpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. I'm Rich Vogel, and that was Stimulating Stuff. The information and opinions provided in this podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent the opinions of their employers, affiliates, or other third-party individuals or organizations. 
Sponsorship and other advertising messages do not constitute support of or preference for specific products or services. This podcast is not designed to and does not provide medical advice, diagnosis, opinion, treatment, or services. This podcast is host and all participants, including guests and sponsors, collectively participants, provide general information for entertainment purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is not a substitute for medical or professional opinion, and you should not use the information for that purpose. Participants shall not be held liable or responsible for any advice, course of treatment, diagnosis, or any other information, services, or product you obtain or render. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. Thank you for listening.